today we're going to be talking more about this whole idea of millennials leaving the church, mm. leaving faith. Some of the stats say that 60% of uh, young people, once you know, two years out of high school, they go to university. Within those two years, 60% of them are leaving faith altogether. Yeah, that's some of the stats out of America, and it seems to be pretty similar here in New Zealand. But you think maybe that this isn't anything new, that your generation as well, Generation X, has gone through a very similar thing. Yeah, I mean, just hearing that statistic, I think I was talking about that statistic like 13 years ago Yeah, wow. on radio. We were doing talkback about it 13 years ago because that stat, that specific statistic, and I think it might have, we might have even been talking about 80% of people leaving the faith when they hit wow. university, yeah. has been around for a good 20 odd years. Uh, I remember kind of my teen years and early 20s going through big existential crises, seeing the world for the first time, asking these big questions, hating on what the generation before me had done with, with church and, and trying to deconstruct the, the whole thing. So I don't, I don't think it's anything unique. The interesting thing about it now is uh, the internet and the age of information where information is coming at us from all over the place. Yeah. So Gen X kind of quietly left the church, whereas now, because of the way everything works, everybody can tell their story. Mm. So everybody's writing articles about millennials leaving the church. Millennials are thankfully able to express what's going on for them, whereas for us, it was just kind of moaning and complaining, and then we'd, we'd walk away and nobody would talk about it, just yeah. because the, the tools weren't there to talk about it in quite the same way. So I think there are some particularities about what's going on with millennials now but I think it's kind of just what young people have always done yeah and who's to blame is it the baby boomers are they the ones kicking everyone out of church or maybe making it so hard for us the gen x's and the millennials to stay in church (laughs) that's a good question no I don't think they're to blame per se I think it's just cultural differences butting up against each other like the way the baby the way the baby boomers see the world and therefore the way they see church and the way they've kind of constructed and built church and we're probably mostly talking about charismatic evangelical circles because if you look at say the catholic church eastern orthodox churches they just don't change Mm. Uh, you've got vatican ii in the catholic circles which lead to a change but largely they don't change but in evangelical charismatic circles because of the way that we uh, we do life. You're able to build very unique things. You're able to kind of almost build church in your image, uh, the way you think it should be done. So baby boomers have built a very specific type of church. And then us, us Gen Xers and millennials, who are largely deconstructionist in our approach, largely wary of authority and the kind of utopian promises made about life in the world. Mm. Uh, We've kind of looked at the way baby boomers have done church and gone, that's not us. That's understandable because we're culturally very different. Uh, So naturally then we've kind of pushed against it, walked away and and either walked away from faith or rethought how we would do church life. Does that come down to a little bit of how the baby boomers grew up in a post-war era where everything was falling apart. The world was, you know, in this massive war and they finally settled down and, and that generation was just keen to just get things started, to grow things, to build things. Yeah, and, yeah. And that kind of mentality has kind of filtered right through into churches. Yeah, I think so. I think so. They faced, they faced a, a, an almost decimated world, you know, whole mm. generation, a generation pretty much 
wiped out. Um, but it also came with a whole lot of new opportunity. The, the world looked very different all of a sudden. Mm. And so into that, they started, re- they rethought how church could be done as well. I mean, yeah, what baby 60s, boomers right? were facing compared to what the generations before them faced was very different. Um, and so they stepped into it and they brought about, uh, yeah, this whole new rebuilding of, of stuff. Mm. And you can see it in the business world. You can see it in churches. You can see it in politics. I mean, you had the establishment of the United Nations and the rubble of what was left of the, the League of Nations. Um, this whole new way of, of doing things, uh, the way countries traded together changed significantly. The way New Zealand interacted with the, the motherland, uh, Britain, changed significantly. And so into that mix, you then get churches and the building of churches and the growing of the kind of church growth movement that kind of got established during that era. Uh, where it almost looked like they're growing corporations, yeah. they're growing, trying to grow these big successful things. And that seems to be a bit of a pushback today, where millennials especially are looking at church as just being a business and maybe not such a community. And they maybe feel it's a bit too inauthentic, a bit, I don't know, shallow. Yeah. When, it, when it comes to them, millennials who have been told our whole lives that, you know, church is all about us. Yeah, they're not yeah, actually yeah. wanting to listen to our deeper problems or, you know, tackle those issues. Have you seen that happen? Yeah, and that completely mirrors my discontent when yeah. I was young. Yeah. You know, I, uh, the, I mean, the church that I've shaped, commoners, the church that I planted in Hamilton is an outworking of that discontent of looking at going, actually, I don't want to grow this corporate thing. I don't want to grow this organization that then has staff that need to be managed, it has strategic plans, it has uh, marketing language, it has branding. I don't want I don't want all that stuff because actually that's the stuff that we Gen X is pushed against as well. Wow. Uh, some of the hierarchical authority uh, models of, of church where you have your pastor and the pastor is kind of the be all and end all and you submit to whatever the, the pastor says. Um, we pushed against that stuff. So I think if you look at what Gen Xers are doing in terms of church now, the whole emergent movement is effectively a Gen X response to kind of the baby boomer church model. Uh, you look at podcasts like The Liturgist, it's a Gen X response. You look at someone like Rob Bell, he's a Gen X response. Uh, so some of that stuff that I know many millennials are relating to when they hear faith talked about is actually coming out of Gen Xers who have had that same discontent, but now we're in a position to start shaping the whole thing. Talking a little bit about pluralism, that's quite a big issue, right? Where yeah. Um, this is kind of at the end of our conversation with Sam and Nigel in the last couple of episodes where, where they kind of talked about this idea that in our day and age, there's so much information out there that when it comes to the exclusive nature of what Christianity says about religion, about God and about what they believe, it just seems a bit too narrow for maybe modern people. Why is that driving people away, do you think? Yeah, I think I think this is where millennials are unique from Gen Xers. Okay. When I was growing up, things like Islam, Buddhism were kind of exotic curiosities, you know? Mm. You heard about them a little bit, but you'd have to go looking to kind of find information and to educate yourself, which people like myself did. I was really curious, so I'd go looking at other worldviews. And then when the internet came and chat rooms started up, I remember the first chat rooms on the internet. I was chatting with whoever I could around the world, but that was really unique. Mm -hmm. So the bombardment of information and competing ideas now, that all sound really valid, 
is totally unique. So that's probably where I have a lot of sympathy for millennials, is just those, all those competing ideas. And then you have this claim from the Christian faith that says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And when you've got billions of other people around the world believing other things, it can sound like a really crazy thing to then believe this one. To actually say that there is a big truth claim, that the world does exist under one truth, uh, is, a, is a big deal and it can be a hard thing to believe when you've got everybody's other competing ideas kind of flowing into the mix. So that existential crisis, I think, is inevitable yeah. in a way that it has never been, never been before. Uh, and I would find it strange if someone didn't, if a young person now didn't go through an existential crisis, because that would say to me they're probably not listening to the yeah. world and thinking about all these, all these other things. Now, wherever you land is the question. Uh, and that's the part that I hope us Christian leaders can be listening to and feeding into a little bit and providing space for those discussions and those competing ideas to actually be wrestled with a little bit. Uh, so hopefully, my hope is that people would land on the idea of Jesus as, yes, being in some way the way, the truth, and, and the life. So when it comes to that exclusive nature, a young person might come to you and say, Frank, I read about this stuff in Buddhism, this stuff in Islam, this stuff in Hinduism, whatever it is, or just humanism, at the end of the day, everyone just seems to want to be really good people, do good things. Like, why do we need to have, you know, this exclusive claim? Like, what is special about what Jesus is saying? Do you yeah, think? yeah. And that, that's where words like exclusivity, inclusivity, um, universality, I find really interesting. Yeah. Because I think we've, we've talked about and sold Christianity in a way that says you have to be in our churches. You have to be there on a Sunday in order to access the truth of Christ. And I think there's an element where you've got to do the, eventually, hopefully, you're going to do the journey with other people who believe in Jesus as well. You're going to go on that Jesus journey together and you're going to learn to love one another. I wouldn't have planted a church if I didn't think that that was the, that was the ultimate. But I actually think Jesus is inclusive, not exclusive. And I actually think the claim of Jesus is universal. It's for everybody. Uh, everybody can access it. So I think in all these other in all these other truth claims, there is an element of truth that, in some way, in my view, reflects Jesus. Mm. I talk with my uh, Muslim friends. I hear a lot of what resonates with my understanding of of Jesus. I just think there's another step to be taken. Yeah. When I talk to uh, friends who lean on Buddhism, and in my early readings of Buddhism, there's a lot of crossover with Jesus thinking. It's just I think it needs to take another step. I think there's a slightly fuller truth to be found. When I listen to my uh, humanist friends who are, who are atheists, but have an optimistic atheism, I hear a lot that resonates with what I believe about Jesus. I just think there's another step that could be taken that actually doesn't narrow the picture down, actually makes the picture a whole lot, a whole lot bigger. Mm. Um, and the idea that Christianity or the whole Jesus claim is intolerant, I find really fascinating too. Because every truth, whatever truth you claim, has an exclusivity to it. So yeah. if you're a secular humanist, you don't believe that when I kneel down and I pray, that's got any sort of real meaning. Yeah. Uh, there is an element of intolerance there. Same with my Muslim friends, my Buddhist friends. All these claims of truth mm. have a, an intolerance built into them, an exclusivity built into them. Christianity is no different, but I actually think Jesus opens the door a lot broader, bigger, wider uh, than we often see. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think I want to expand on that because there's so much in what you just said. 
I think having the ability to look at like a, a Buddhist point of view, a Muslim worldview, and to say, I see that truth, can we talk about it? And mm. just come at it from that angle of like, let's discuss that because there's a lot of shared ground there. Yeah. I think that's a really good starting point. It is a good starting point. And it comes down to how we understand truth and yeah. how we understand Jesus as in some way truth. And I'm someone who believes that the Holy Spirit is active always and everywhere. I don't believe he's only active in the Christian community. Mm. So that means that Jesus, if he is the truth, every time I encounter truth, whether that's developed to its fullness or not, I in some way encounter Jesus. Uh, so when I'm chatting with my Muslim friend and my Muslim friend speaks truth, and he has the ability, they have the ability to speak truth, just as everybody does, just as I do. Mm. There's something of Jesus to be encountered in that. Yeah. So then my role as a follower of Jesus is to be able to hear that, to be able to possibly name it if it's appropriate to do so, to participate it, to enhance it. But Jesus in that regard, I think, can be encountered everywhere. Just have to have ears to hear and eyes to see. For me anyway, growing up in church, there was this jargon, this Christianese, we like to call it, where you have these exclusive clans and everything is talked about in this Christian language that when you do come up against another point of view or another worldview, it does seem very oppositional. Yeah. And I think that's kind of been set up, maybe not from anyone in particular, but just set up in our kind of developing minds that mm. you know we belong to this church, it's very tribal, and that when you do think about other religions or other worldviews, you automatically just put them on the outer. Yeah. And they're like, they're different. So like, what are the differences? Instead of looking at what are the, the things that we have in common. Yeah, and, and trying and, to, and yeah, it, people are, uh, work so hard to try and remind themselves why those people are wrong. Yeah. As opposed to going, actually, what's right in there? And what in there could enhance who I know myself to be and what, mm. I, what I understand truth to be? Like I, I would recite the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and say that they are true. They are mm. true statements. They are, I think, and I think they're true for everybody, not just true for me. I'm not a postmodern who thinks that my truth and your truth are entirely different. I think there is an overarching truth, yeah. which is where a lot of people would then look at me and go, you're being ridiculous. But I think there is. But I think that truth can be encountered all over the place if we're not scared. I think fear plays a big part in it, you know, wanting yeah. to hold that thing that's different out there because what if that then makes me lose the thing that I've got? Uh, that can be a scary proposition. But if we're actually confident in saying this is what I believe to be true, then it becomes okay to delve into the thinking of another. Mm. Uh, commune, do relationship together and learn from one another. Just on that point of fear, I mean, there's a president in America who kind of plays on that fear of, trying to name the other yeah. and be exclusive, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. that's how distorted it can get. And sadly, I think a lot of Christians have bought into, into that fear. A lot of end times theology, which you'll be really familiar with, the whole left behind way of thinking is built on fear that there's this big bad world, it's going to encroach and it's going to destroy us and we need to kind of hold it out there. Um, and there's a lot of politics around the world at the moment, brought on by things like I think the refugee crisis, where all of a sudden the other who's really different is right on our doorstep and they need our help, what do we do? That's scary. So there's a, a lot of politics I think going on around the world that is that plays into that fear because it gets votes. What would you say to a baby boomer or even someone older listening to this conversation about pluralism and they say, they might say it's just too wishy-washy 
to talk like this, like Christianity is the way, the truth and the life. What is the fear there? Yeah, I would say, I would say I agree. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. But I think we need to get confident in pluralism confident of our place and it's just a rethinking about the place that christianity has mm. no longer is christianity the religion of the western empire secular humanism if we're going to be honest is the religion yeah. of the, the western empire um, christianity isn't and so we're we're losing our power and nobody likes to lose power we like to be in power but our truth claim is that God came into the world as a human being, as a baby, born in this kind of dusty outpost of the Roman Empire. You don't get any more humiliating than that. Mm. He lived his life with the outcasts, then went to the cross. Our example of living faith is one who put himself last, who became the voice of complete and utter service in the giving up of self completely. Mm. And somehow life came and goodness and truth and beauty came through, through that. So us who might want to hold on to our power, hold on to our little bit of the empire and not give room to the other, if that's our example, we should be completely willing to lay ourselves down, give room for everybody else, but know who we are in the middle of it and be willing to speak humbly out of who we are. That's, that's awesome. And I think one of the examples that I really love so much about Jesus is that he never claimed to have the kingdom here on earth, like now already. It wasn't fulfilled, right? It was something that was always building upon. I don't know if I said that right, but I think what he promised was never this heaven in the sky, this you mm. know peace on earth for everybody. It was what he promised was this kind of life this journey of uh, traveling the hard road and suffering. And he suffered the ultimate suffering, like death on a cross. Yeah. So it, yeah, yeah. it, it kind of plays into this whole idea that if you're a Christian, God's going to bless you. He's going to give you the desires of your heart. But then really it's, it's kind of also holding in paradox this idea that life is actually really tricky. Yeah. And it's in the working out messy, yeah. of in that messy walk. Um, it, it's going to lead somewhere, but it's, it's almost the walk that is the important thing. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus described, Jesus said, uh, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Their repentance, their word repent is hard. It involves recognizing that there's something not right about who I am and the way that I live. And maybe I need to change in some way to align with this kingdom that uh, Jesus is talking about. And you look at the different parables he used and the different metaphors that he used to describe the kingdom. There are lots of them. Some of them it's this really beautiful thing. Uh, most of the time it's this really humble, small thing that just kind of permeates the, the culture around it. Uh, not, an, not an easy thing. It's this uh, wonderful podcast here in New Zealand, uh, just started up by Spanky Moore and Scotty Reeve, based on Scotty's book, 21 Elephants. Uh, they just released it. I would encourage people to listen to it. In there, Scotty talks about his kind of shift, and Scotty's millennial, but his shift on this whole way of thinking about faith. He kind of grew up in the kind of nice, neat, evangelical, charismatic um, then he had this kind of revolution in the way that he thought about faith, went through the whole deconstruction. Mm. Um, but in the podcast, to kind of give it away, uh, he talks about this moment working with Zeal, because he's done a lot of work with Zeal, where he was, I think, outside this event, uh, looking after this young lady who was drunk as a skunk, pretty much unconscious. There's this moment where she comes to and just vomits 
on Scotty. <laughs> and he had this amazing realization of Jesus being in that moment. Now, if you've been sold the idea that following Jesus is kind of going to make everything okay, it's going to provide the answers for all the stuff and all the things that you're going to be blessed and there are going to be people who love you and you're going to love them back and it's all going to be rosy, then the picture that Scotty just gave doesn't fit at all. But if Jesus is this kind of gritty person who stepped into this gritty part of the world, hung out with some really unsavory people and told them that the kingdom of God was right there for them, then it's get this picture of something that's going to be messy. And people, and because he hung out with the outcast, people are outcasts because there's a power base that wants to hold on to its power and pushes them to the side. Soon as you start hanging out with those people, soon as you start calling some of that stuff out, those who have the power are going to want to push you down. It's not going to be easy. And in a world that has competing truths now, you try and claim that Jesus is God, was God in the flesh. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way to salvation. He's the way to a renewed world. It's a hard statement to make in the world now. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing easy about the Christian faith. Nothing easy at all. I think we need to stop selling it as something that, that feels good and is going to be great. And that whole idea of the Christian life is about those little steps, those little incremental things that you do that are actually hard and dirty and painful and including in people's suffering. That there just doesn't really sell, does it? Like You can't really go out and tell people it's going to yeah. hurt because no one's going to come to your church. But not, not, not only that, because we're <laughs> talking about some of the radical stuff that people do love to buy into. You know you're going you're gonna to help the poor. But there's the self-revelation stuff that goes on as well. When you're faced with the, when you're faced with the reality of who Jesus is, how amazing he is, you engage in practices like silence, for instance, and you start to hear what goes on in your own head, and you start to see yourself. That's a tough journey as well. And then we have a faith that says that every inclination you have some of that stuff isn't actually good. Mm. Whereas we live in a world now that tells you that every inclination you have is good, is whole, it's good, and you should yeah. pursue it. Whereas we have a faith that talks about self-denial. Actually, a whole bunch of those inclinations that you have, they need to be placed on that repentance journey where you turn uh, and you live a different way that aligns with this kingdom. That means dealing with some of those impulses. That sounds a bit hard. To, That's an unpleasant uh... <laughs> thing. But Jesus talked about that sort of stuff. Take yeah. up your cross. Uh, there's grace in it, and that grace is freely available, and it's beautiful, but that grace should never leave you. That grace does not say that there isn't stuff that needs to be changed. So that journey is hard as well. Do you think that millennials especially, or maybe just this is indicative of every young generation coming through, but do we need to be more disciplined and learn to contemplate and just sit in silence more and just do those kind of uh, self-controlled things a bit better because we're so used to just you know having everything so quickly. Yeah, quickly having everything on, learning to slow down, yeah. not have the answer straight away. Yeah, but I, again, I think that's true of, of every generation. Like I think about my young years and having the stereo up loud in my room, always wanting to be doing something, um, slowing down, learning to listen, pushing aside the distractions, 
yeah, I think those disciplines are really, really important. And I think they're more important now than they have ever been. Yeah. I mean, how often do you just sit and stare out the window and let your mind wander? Um, how often does the phone come out instead? How often when we're in a crowded room and we're kind of standing on our own, do we pull out the phone to, to be distracted rather than actually sit with whatever is going on around us? Mm. Um, once upon a time, you just did those things. And so the brain was able to release, it was able to process, whereas now we're so distracted, that ability to kind of ground ourselves in the moment and be here and now, I think is really, really important. How have you helped maybe people my age wrestle with their faith? What kind of encouragement have you given when people have come to you and with doubts, with these existential crises going on in their heads? Um, how have you said, look, this is a way that I have maybe wrestled with it. You know, what kind of advice can you give to people going through this deconstruction phase? Yeah. Again, I think um, Spanky and Scotty and 21 Elephants, the podcast, deal with this really well. Uh, on how to go through the deconstruction, how to do it in a healthy way, not to wallow in it and kind of turn yourself into a martyr um, or trying to hold on to the deconstruction thinking it's, it's amazing because it's a hard thing to go through. Mostly I hope that people just take time, not do it alone and not just surround yourself with people in the same existential crisis thinking exactly the same thing. This is where I think church if we leaders can be okay with people being in our midst who are doubting and wondering and asking tough questions is really valuable. The beauty of church is you throw a whole bunch of people together who normally, probably, would never hang out together. Mm. Uh, that's the ideal. Uh, you get cliques that develop in a lot of churches, but hopefully you've got a group of people who radically love each other who outside of that community probably would never give each other the time of day. But it means there's mutual learning that goes on. So a millennial who is doubting, imagine sitting in the same room as a person who's 60, 70 years old, who's done the faith their whole life, and actually respecting that and taking the time to listen to their wisdom and what they have to offer. Or a child mm. who thinks the most ridiculous things are true, and listening to what they've got going on and subjecting yourself to that mix of community where people love each other. Yep. Uh, I think that takes an element of getting over yourself to be able to sit and actually listen and do life with, with such people. But there's an element where us church leaders have to be okay with people sitting in our midst who might not believe things like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed like I do, might be wondering, actually is something like Buddhism is actually maybe that's actually the truth and being okay giving room and feeding in our answers to questions when we've got them just giving space for the whole thing. So Nigel Cottle in the last episode he did talk about that very idea and I think some of his research he did his masters on this question of why millennials are leaving church and this, this happened about eight years ago but the answer that I think he gave was the exact same one of having this intergenerational mix mm. of people. In his research, I think he said that he found um, if a young person had at least five people from different generations mm. able to speak into that person's life, um, they're 80, 90% more likely to stay connected into a church. So that is yeah. that was super key in his findings. Yeah, um, I think, and I have, I've not done the research, yeah. but I just think there's a beauty in it. And I think it makes sense. I remember way back doing talkback and talking to a lot of young people who were suicidal, self-harming. And one of the things that I, that I saw time and time again was the only people they were talking to were people in exactly the same hole. Yeah. Um, 
but there are people who have been in that hole, they've climbed out, they're throwing the ladder back down and they're asking you to, they're asking you to climb the ladder. Um, so why only hang out with people who are in exactly the same place? You'll find that people who are like 60, 70, or even me at 40, we've been there. We've been in exactly the same place. We get it. Um, sometimes I think we get fearful of then encountering it in, in, in others, but actually if we can be okay with that, I think there's something beautiful to be had. And then the 60, 70-year-old and the child get to learn from the questions that the millennial is asking as well and the doubts that they're having. Uh, there's a whole new encounter of Jesus to be had in those doubts and those questions that all of us get to learn from. I, I really want to do an episode coming up on suicide, I think, and like some of those big things that people struggle with, depression and that. It seems like everyone I know kind of talks about this idea somewhere along the way where they go through this, this struggle and a lot of people might leave their faith, leave the church, or in some cases they take their own life. I mean, there's people taking their life, um, celebrities taking their life in, yeah. in the news and the media all the time, especially males it seems, people yeah. that, um, you know, they, they struggle with a whole bunch of stuff and they, they can't reconcile it and so it just seems easier to get out. Do you think that they are struggling with some of the same kind of existential angst that maybe young millennials are facing when they leave the church? You know, th those kind of things and they're just not able to wrestle with it in a healthy way. Yeah. There's, there's two discussions there. There's yeah. mental illness, yeah. which I think needs to be addressed. And it's slightly different from an, it was not slightly, it's vastly different from an existential crisis. Throw an existential crisis into mm. mental illness mm. and you've got a potent recipe for, for disaster. Yeah. I'm no expert on that stuff, so I'd struggle to talk about it. But it's been interesting to note that some of the deaths that have happened, the likes of Chester Bennington, Chris Cornell, two the most recent ones, mm. uh, Gen Xers. Um, and gen very creative Gen Xers, and you had people like Kurt Cobain back in the day. Again, same same generation. Um, now I don't want to. I think we've got to give lots of room for the mental illness discussion. But back from that, we're the first generation to be born of people who went through the kind of worldview revolutions in the West of the 60s and 70s, sexual revolution, yeah. kind of all the hippie stuff, um, Woodstock, all the music that was coming out of there. Um, we're the first generation born to those people who are experimenting, where for us it hasn't been an experiment, it's been a total way of life where all truth claims have been kind of thrown off. And what are you, what are you left with? Left with yourself, wallowing in your own, wallowing is a terribly negative term, but it's often what's happening, wallowing in your, your own self with no other kind of marker, no other guide point to, to turn to. Yeah. Um, so someone like Chester Bennington loses a good friend like Chris Cornell and, and it, things fall apart. Mm. Um, but I don't want to overstate that over and against mental illness and real, very real depression that actually needs uh, sometimes medication and needs good professional professional help. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think there's a lot of people that um, struggle with thoughts of suicide in our generation and it seems like a little bit crazy where we're also the generation that has so much at our feet, you know, like we yeah. have all this technology, we have like, we're told mm. that we can do anything we want to. And you'd think that with all that kind of comfort, the more you have, 
the more you're actually going to be asking these questions at a deeper level. And because you've got so much room to think about all these other things. Like, yeah. you, know, you imagine if your day-to-day -day was just about surviving, and then have room to have an existential crisis. Yeah. Like the, uh, the existential crisis that goes on for young people in the West it was a very strange thing to someone living in a slum in, say, India. Exactly. They're just trying to survive, just doing what they need to do day in and day out. They don't have the room to then overthink uh, everything. But two, two responses to that. I think this generation also feels a pressure to put on a veneer of the good life uh, in a way that others haven't. I had, in terms of thinking about suicide, I probably had my most acute moment contemplating uh, taking my own life not long after getting serious about my faith mm. very quickly kind of got um, not propelled but very quickly because of the way that I think in a question and uh, into a youth leadership situation sitting in a church office I was studying at Bible college I was preaching and I felt like I was faking it. I felt like I was having to put on this front to look like the good Christian and it didn't really feel like me and I remember sitting in the church office thinking, okay, if I go to the chemist, it was very unguy like guys use guns and things like that, things that are brutal and fatal. Um, but I remember thinking, if I go to the chemist, what would I need to buy uh, to take a lot of in order to end my life? It was a really scary moment all of a sudden, and I sat back and went, whoa, where did that come from? And I think it was because I was faking it. I was trying to be the good person. Now throw Instagram and social media mm. and having to look like you've got it all together into that mix. And there's a lot of stuff being hidden. Mm. You've got a really connected generation, but a generation that's hiding the stuff of life that isn't so great. Then if you step into a church that doesn't provide any room for lament and confession and grappling with and being okay with some of that stuff that isn't great and actually you're supposed to just be happy and look like you got it all together. Yeah. Again, you're just creating that recipe for disaster. Another answer to that, early hedonist philosophers. Uh, hedonism being the pursuit of indulging everything that we, every impulse that we have. Yeah. Early hedonist philosophers threw themselves into that and then realized that actually that doesn't bring happiness. The, what they discovered was that Yes, kind of giving into some of those impulses, enjoying the good life is wonderful, but you have to have a bit of discipline in there as well. Mm. You have to have some things where actually you limit yourself. You engage in a little bit of discipline, uh, and when you do, it's really rewarding. So there's lots of beauty in life to be found in discipline, which is where practices like fasting, getting up early, the discipline of silence, those sort of things are actually really beneficial. Mm. Um, exercise, setting goals and seeing them through. It's amazing how good you can feel about yourself when you've said, okay, I'm going to go to the gym or I'm going to go for a run or I'm going to go for a walk this many times a week and you do it. Yeah. Uh, you feel good about yourself. I think a lot of people my age have a lot of uh, good intentions, but mm. when it comes to actually doing them, yeah, it's a different story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is where people like baby boomers actually have something to teach both Gen Xers and Millennials because they're very disciplined. Yeah. Um, they would set goals and set about achieving them. They get stuff done. Yeah, and they would go into a workplace and they would be the person at the bottom of the ladder who gets treated like rubbish until they can kind of work their way, work their way up. Yeah. Um, they, have, they, have, they have a lot to teach us if we're willing to listen.
I think it was um, Jim Carrey who said, I hope everyone gets their dreams and desires because then they'll realize that that's not actually the answer to life. Yeah. That's such a good, good quote. Uh, moving on now, I've got this quote from uh, Rachel Hell Evans. She said, she's not worried about who fills church pews. Death is a thing that empires worry about, not a thing that resurrection people worry about. Mm. She says that as long as there's someone baptizing sinners, breaking the bread, drinking the wine, as long as these people confessing their sins, healing, walking with one another through suffering, then the church is alive and well. Mm. And I guess that kind of brings up the question for me of what are some of those fundamentals that she kind of mentions at the end there in church that you might think are like key things that it would be good if we kind of focused on those things mm. as a generation of young people going through these existential questions and crises and, mm. and throwing stuff out. What are some stuff to actually include back into our discipline and our, and our weekly walk? If I was to say, what do I, as a, as a person who's planted a church, as a minister who's taken vows and who, who wants to see a church community flourish, what do, I, what do I think at its heart are we really all about? I would say word. So I'd say grappling with scripture together. So we're a wonderfully small church, which means that we actually get to discuss scripture together on a Sunday. I don't do a full sermon. We talk about the Bible, always the gospel passage together, which means that people get to ask their questions. They get to throw their doubts and they get to go, oh, I didn't like that so much. And we talk about that stuff together. So I think grappling with the word together, intergenerationally, with people in different parts of, of their walk, uh, sacrament. So I believe there are two sacraments, being a good uh, Wesleyan Methodist. Uh, baptism, baptism kind of being the rite of initiation, uh, and Holy Communion. And I believe there's something mystical about Holy Communion. Mm. Uh, holy Communion is the biggest part of our worship every Sunday. Everything we do kind of leads up to that. Our lamenting, confession, our discussion of Scripture together, our uh, declaration of faith when we say the Apostles' Creed together, all comes down to that. And I think there's something mystical that happens where in that meal, somehow we unite with Christ. And no matter who we are, no matter where we're at in our walk with life, we open ourselves up to His grace. But it's also wonderfully egalitarian. So if you're poor, you're coming to the same table as the rich person. Mm. No one has more status than the other in that mix. Man, woman, child, uh, slave, free. Not that we have any slaves, but you know, <laughs> that wonderful passage in Galatians. Um, teenager, elderly, everybody comes to that table. We unite in Christ and therefore we unite together. There's something beautiful in that. Um, so word, sacrament, and radical love of each other. I think the church community, the Christian community, if you're on the outside looking in, should be a microcosm, a wonderful example of people who radically love each other, who probably, like we said earlier, otherwise wouldn't outside of the church walls. Mm -hmm. The church community should be a vision as far as it can be taken in the here and now of what God's kingdom in the future will look like. Um, it should be a shining example of that. We add in a whole bunch of other programs and things to try and entertain everybody, but word, sacrament, loving each other, yeah. I think are the three foundations of any church. And if we stripped away a whole bunch of the other stuff and we just did those three things well, uh, I think would be a lot more, for want of a better word, attractive. I guess a humanist might look at that and say, why do you need those other two things? Why not just love each other? Yeah, yeah. I would say because if you strip out those other things, us humans aren't actually very good at loving each other. <laughs> uh, the sacrament, for instance, of Holy Communion, I think, is a vision of grace. It, it teaches us and it, 
it in some mystical way infuses us with the ability to carry out the love. Um, the grappling with the word together. In the word we have this amazing vision of humanity in all its beauty and in all its uh, mess. Mm. Journeying with, with God. I mean, a humanist might say, yeah, you could love each other without those other things, but I believe in God. Yeah. And I believe that the ultimate purpose of life is unity with God and unity with each other. So I think word sacrament and loving each other do both of those things. And maybe finally, we'll end on this. Uh, what would be your prediction of how you see the church looking in the future? I mean, I think this vision of church that you've just described is quite different to maybe a lot of the evangelical church traditions that I grew up in. Yeah. Um, so how, how do you see maybe our generation picking up some of this stuff or maybe some other stuff and kind of redefining church? I think in the last um, episode, Nigel and Sam, they talked about this big schism that is kind of going on across church culture, mm. um, maybe across um, across the world where there's a bit of a shake-up going on in that church to them, they think, they predict that it will look very different. Have you thought about that? And do you think it's going to look different in 50 years in terms of the way that people do faith? It's a really good question. I'm terrible at predicting <laughs> the future. I like looking at history. Um, and if I was to look at history, I would say things like uh, the warehouse church with the band, et cetera, et cetera, is a fad that's going to pass. Um, if anything, I, I see people running back to older forms of, of the faith that haven't added in all that, all that other stuff. They are word, sacrament, communities loving one another. Um, so I, I actually see things like the Catholic church growing, I think it will grow, and I think there'll be um, a movement towards utilizing more of those ancient forms of faith. I think we'll see a proliferation of small communities. I think big churches will remain and they'll do really well, but I think we'll see a proliferation of smaller communities that uh, are a little more niche. Um, I think we'll see uh, people wanting to slow down and connect a lot more. I think the challenge for church leaders will be how do we get people to actually sit down and do life together? Yeah. How do we get people sitting at a table together and eating together and putting the phone away? Um, so I have no amazing predictions, but I think a prolifer proliferation of small churches that slow down are a lot quieter uh, that pull on some of those ancient traditions that have always been there in the Christian faith. I think we'll see more of that. That's great. Thanks so much for your time. So yeah, much wisdom to, um, to think about and to, yeah, to mull over. And I, I like the fact that you're coming in to these conversations and you're not saying this is the way to do it. It's, it's very much an open discussion. Oh, and I think if, if you look at the history of the Christian faith, there has never been one way to do it. It's yeah. always been a diverse, mixed community, always grappling with stuff. But if I was to say anything, I think there's all these doomsday people. I'm a little like Rachel Held Evans. I think there's all these doomsday people who think the church is dying and we act like there's this massive crisis and we've got to do something about it. There's an element where, yeah, we do have to address culturally what's going on and how we can speak truth into that, mm -hmm. how we can bring word, sacrament and love into, into that mix. But I'm with Jesus when he said that the, when he was talking to Peter, uh, and he said that the, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I believe that. I believe that. Yeah. The church might dwindle, it might get smaller, but it will always be there until, as I crazily believe, Jesus returns and God makes all things right. Um, I think the church will be there right up until then.
That's cool. And what that right looks like. Who knows? Is um, quite beyond our comprehension. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and lots of people try and speculate. But I just believe that somehow all things will be made right. And that at, the, at that time we'll all go, oh, it makes sense. <laughs>